Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. This episode of the podcast, I talk about an often requested topic, supplements. Which ones are useful? Which ones are complete nonsense? Can they help you run faster? Or will they make you healthier? All of these things are discussed in this episode. I try to address which supplements might help you, which ones might not. As I say multiple times in the episode, none of these things are recommendations because I'm not a doctor nor a dietitian. It is just some things I've played with in my life and what the science says and whether or not they might be worthwhile for you. Some point in the episode, I talked about iron and I could not remember in the moment exactly how plant intake interacts with the consumption of iron in order to make it less or more absorbable. So I looked it up and wanted to put it here. If you're taking iron or eating meat and you're really struggling with anemia, then vitamin C can actually help iron absorption. This is why you will often see vitamin C in iron supplements. And then some stuff that can hurt iron absorption would be calcium. You need to have a bunch of it, but if you're consuming a lot of dairy, then we might see some calcium interacting with your iron. Again, this is not going to be a big deal for most people, but if you have anemia, it could be something to look at. And then food high in oxalates is actually what I was looking for. And this is the uh, this is something that you'll find in things like spinach and beets and kale and all, all sorts of plants. And this is the oxalates are why if you're really struggling with anemia, you might want to separate your plant intake and why a lot of vegans can even have further struggles with anemia, despite the fact that they might get enough total iron numbers, they're just not absorbing them very well. So that is my note on iron that I meant to include last night and just couldn't really get it out of my brain. I also forgot to address a question from the Facebook group about supplements that are going to help cortisol. I recorded a short five minute live after the fact to address that question. If you're interested, please click the link in the show notes and follow that. It discusses things like ashwagandha and rhodiola and ginseng and theanine to help regulate your cortisol curve. Again, supplements are not a cure-all. They are supplemental, just like their name would imply. But if you are doing a lot of things right and trying really hard and still struggling, they might help you out. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get into it. Let's talk supplements, whether they're helpful or nonsense. Uh, But before we get into that, just a couple of reminders. I'm not a doctor or a dietitian. I'm not recommending you take supplements. I will never recommend that you take supplements. Sometimes I I find them to be useful. Um, I'm happy to tell you what I take but I'll, I'm going to mostly tell you some basics about different supplements, what they do, and whether or not they've shown to be beneficial. None of this is actually a recommendation. This is always true. This is doubly true now because things can just get a little weird um, when it comes to supplementation. For example, 
if you are on antidepressants and take St. John's wort, it tends to cause a lot of problems. Supplements do something to your body. That's why you take them. So if you're on medications or if you are, you know, clearly allergic or have any issues, then you're probably going to run into further issues if you take supplements. So be careful. Some things here like that we're going to talk about do warrant like an entire mini episode about that specific supplement. That's actually how I learned about the importance of a lot of these things. I've listened to people talk about magnesium and vitamin D for like hours, taking courses on different vitamins and minerals. So if we're looking a little cursory here, that's kind of the point. I'm, I've listened to people like spend a surprising amount talking about beats and whether they somehow make you run faster, right? Like we could dive really deep into all of these things. This is not the purpose of tonight. I am going to give an overview of like a small subset of supplements. As we go along, if you have a question or want one that want me to cover one on the fly, put it in the comments or the chat, and I am happy to address that. But otherwise, it is going to be kind of kind of shortened to the point. When I say something like vitamin D helps calcium put where it needs to get, helps uh, put calcium where it needs to go, I know that's not completely accurate or helpful or like useful in biology, but it just doesn't matter. Most people here don't care about the details and you want some practical stuff and it is going to help you remember better. So let's get into it a little bit more, right? Supplements are not the target. They are well-named. They should be supplemental to a good diet and training regimen. They are not, they should not be the main source of anything. If you're not eating enough or sleeping well or getting into the sunlight first thing in the morning to like regulate your circadian rhythm, doing mobility work, strength training, supplements are not your main target. You should figure that stuff out first. A lot of the time we like to look for this kind of magic pill and it just doesn't exist. Let's use sleep as an example, because it's kind of easy. You could have the best supplement regimen in the world. You could dial in your melatonin doses. It doesn't matter. It does not compare to getting sunlight in your eyes early in the morning. That directly regulates your circadian rhythm from your brain. It doesn't matter <clears throat> what else you do. If you don't have a dark room when you sleep, it doesn't matter how much lemon balm you take to calm yourself down at night. You're going to struggle. If you eat a giant meal before you go to bed, you're not going to hit, it's like parasympathetic calming state. You're going to have elevated cortisol. You're not going to sleep. Getting any one of those things better will do a hundred times a good supplement regimen. And this is also true of our training. If your training regimen is bad, you could take all the beet powder in the world. It's not going to make you that much better. So we need to have the basics right first. When it comes to food, it would be much better if you got everything from whole foods. I realize that's not always realistic for a whole lot of reasons. My typical example is magnesium because our soil is depleted of magnesium. So even if you ate all the green things in the world, you're probably, you might still end up a little short on magnesium. Ideally not. Ideally, you get your food from a good source and be fine and you wouldn't have to worry about it. 
but you could also just take a little bit of magnesium. So we want to target the big rocks and then occasionally fill in a couple pebbles here and there to correct our gaps. I clearly think supplementation is helpful for athletes because I've talked about things like carb supplements during racing, like maltodextrin and dextrose and all these things. Like I use it. I have a big bag of HBCD in my pantry. I'm, I buy maltodextrin. I have people like figure out how much tailwind they should take. It is really tough to get as many carbs as you need to keep yourself rolling really well during a long race by trying to target whole foods unless you've been doing this a long time. So that's one example of supplement that's super helpful. Same protein powders. As a busy athlete, it can be very difficult to eat enough protein. You need to eat enough protein or else your body will fall apart. So powders can help you immensely. I had a shake today. They should not be your primary intake. I've also had a meal and I'm going to have another one. We should target protein from whole foods but if you struggle with that, include a protein shake. You should not be trying to get 80% of your protein from you know, whey powder or a vegan protein source. We want to get it from whole foods. If you're a vegan, great. Eat some tofu and switch your carbohydrates out for something like lentils and legumes. If you're not, eat a steak. I don't care. But have some protein. And then if you are short or struggling or really on the go, this is where a protein shake can be super helpful. Now, talk about some more like specific supplements. Gonna start off partially because I already mentioned it with magnesium. 50%-ish, give or take, of Americans tend to be deficient in magnesium. It is required for your heart to function well and for your DNA to replicate and for your mitochondria to do their job, which if you don't know, is required for you to be an endurance athlete. Is also needed for your muscles and your nerves to work properly. There's like over 300 things in the human body. If you are deficient in magnesium, you are going to struggle. It is also very hard to test your magnesium levels. It stores in multiple places from your red blood cells to wherever. And it is best to target sufficient intake of magnesium. And you get that from green stuff. Chlorophyll has a ton of magnesium in it. Chlorophyll is actually very similar to a red blood cell, except for instead of iron, heme iron, you have magnesium in there. That's what makes it green. So if you eat green things, you are going to get more magnesium. Esther, do you mean for supplementation? The question was, are certain magnesium types best? So if you don't eat greens, then you're probably going to be a little short in your magnesium, and you might consider a supplement. Now, if this is what you meant, I'm about to answer it. Type matters here. Certain forms are a lot more absorbable than others. For example, magnesium citrate functions primarily as a laxative for most people. It does not do very well as to getting, in, getting magnesium in your body. It does a great job of making you poop. So lovely if you need that. Not great if you're trying to get a magnesium supplement. Two really good forms are magnesium malate and magnesium glycinate. They absorb very well. They get where they need to go. They seem to show up in your red blood cells. They, all of these things make good things for magnesium. The reason you have different types is you have to attach magnesium to something to get it into your system. 
So it is, these two are either attached to malic acid, magnesium malate, or glycine, magnesium glycinate. This is why. So malate can be cheaper, but it requires you to take a lot more pills because it doesn't attach to as much. You need more malic acid to get the same amount of magnesium. So I personally prefer glycinate. Malate can be a little cheaper, again, but I prefer glycinate. I like the one from Pure Encapsulations. It's affordable. It's very easy to take. Is what I take. I take one a day. And that brand used to not be publicly available. That has changed. So I used to buy magnesium malate from Doublewood. I have since switched to magnesium glycinate from Pure Encapsulations. You should do whatever you wish. Again, not recommending anything. If you eat a lot of leafy greens, you might not need to take anything, right? So kind of be aware of that. Let's ask, can you put those names in here? Because I forgot my notepad. I absolutely will. I'm going to put all of them in at the end in the comments on Facebook so they're permanently stored. They will also be in the show notes on the podcast. So if any more questions on magnesium, pop them in. I'm going to move to vitamin D. This is another really important one. It functions basically as a hormone in your body. It's not just a vitamin. It does even more stuff than magnesium. I've heard everything from like 500 plus things that vitamin D plays a role in. Um, from making serotonin to being very important in testosterone and estrogen and progesterone um, production to all sorts of stuff. One of the most important things it does is puts calcium where it needs to go. So without vitamin D, you're at a high risk for things like stress fractures and osteoporosis. Even if your calcium intake is fine, right? Unless your vitamin D level's okay, you are going to struggle to get enough calcium. We typically get vitamin D from the sun, but most of us spend a lot of time inside these days. So supplements can help, especially in the winter, especially if you live in a Northern climate. It's also required for things like, as I said before, serotonin production. So if you get seasonal effectiveness disorder, SAD, SAD, then you might be low on vitamin D. They've shown a very close correlation between those two things. Now, when it comes to dosing here, I'm not actually gonna recommend anything. Um, and I know I said that more than once, that's really true for the fat soluble vitamins. So vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin K, vitamin D, these things actually attach to fat and they will attach, store in your fat stores. So you can overdose them. For something like vitamin A, it's really easy to do. You can take way too much and end up with vitamin A toxicity. This happens a lot in people in the, it happens occasionally uh, in the, with the current like surge in the carnivore community where a lot of people are eating liver. Liver is very, very high in vitamin A. So you can absolutely end up with vitamin A toxicity from eating too much liver. It's very possible. Um, vitamin D, it's a lot harder to be toxic, but it is possible. Um, you should get your vitamin D levels tested and then adjust accordingly. There is a pretty close correlation with how much you need to take to how much you need to boost your vitamin D levels. So go get a test for 25 hydroxy vitamin D. And I think it costs like 25 bucks out of pocket with someplace like LabCorp. Um, it's often free if you have insurance. And all of that said, 
they've done studies where people take like 10,000 IUs per day and seem to have very few of any negative results. They have put people on something like 100,000 IUs per day, and that is where we start to see real problems, right? So you have to be, you typically have to be taking an insane amount. Doesn't mean you should take that much. It means it's probably not a big deal. I often take, personally, 5,000 in the winter and about 2,000 in the summer. I get mine from Athletic Greens. It's a little dropper. It lasts a very long time. I've also had my blood drawn quite a few times, so I have a basic idea of what my vitamin D levels look like. I should get them tested again, but that's just me. So vitamin D, it's very useful. You might need to supplement. Now, if you are supplementing with vitamin D, oh, form, um, you'll see vitamin D2 and vitamin D3. Vitamin D2 is a waste of your time. If you find it in mushrooms, it's great. It's healthy for you. It doesn't actually really convert very well to vitamin D, or sorry, to 25-hydroxy vitamin D, the one that's in your system. So if you're going to buy a supplement anyway, buy the one that works better. There's vitamin K2. If you are supplementing with vitamin D3, you should take some vitamin K2. I'm not telling you to take vitamin D, but if you are, you absolutely should take vitamin K2. So vitamin D as a supplement absorbs a lot better than what you typically get from the sun, right? And if you are taking a lot more and absorbing a lot more, we can end up with problems. And as I said, vitamin D helps put calcium where it needs to go. And it does that by putting it into your bloodstream. So you can actually end up with calcification of your arteries if you don't have enough vitamin K2 because vitamin K2 actually recycles that calcium from your arteries into bones and other things and storage centers and where it should be. So if you are not taking any K2 with your D3, you might end up with some arterial calcification, which is not good for you. You don't need a lot. You don't even need to take it every day. You can, I forget the units, but I think 200 to 300 sticks in my brain. I think it's micrograms, but I take a vitamin D supplement with K2 in it. You don't have to. They should go together though. Now there's, the, there's also the B vitamins, vitamins B. There are many of these. Many of us get enough of these. These are particularly important if you're a vegan or vegetarian or don't eat a lot of meat products. Most vitamin B that we get, or most B vitamins that we get come from various animal products. There's other sources. Folate comes from greens a lot of the time. You'll see a lot of them in legumes. B12 only comes from animal products. If you are a vegan, you do not get B12. If you're a vegan, you probably know this. If not, you should. And a lot of the time, if you only take a single B vitamin, so B12, these things can compete in your body for space. So I've heard it recommended that you should just take a B complex and let the body sort it out. It seems to track with me. These things are water soluble. It's very hard to take too many and also not particularly absorbable. This is why if you look on the back of a multivitamin or a B-complex, you will see something insane looking like 10,000% of vitamin B, whatever of your daily value. And that's because you're not absorbing much of it. A lot of these B vitamins, you only absorb like five or 6%. Per percent. So they need to give you a ton of them in order for you to get any of them. And this is also why when you take like a multi or a B complex, you're 
pee, specifically your first morning pee if you take it at night, is typically going to be golden, like straight up very yellow, no matter how hydrated you are. And it be like the other people who don't get this a lot of people are not getting enough protein. So we just need to make sure that you're getting enough B vitamins to take care of yourself. They're very important for everything from brain function to muscle work, muscles working, right? So you need to get enough B vitamins. If you eat a good amount of protein in our animal products, you get plenty. If not, find a supplement. We can also look at a multivitamin. A multi can be a great form of nutritional insurance, but if you're going to get a multi, you should ask a few questions. One, does it have other stuff in it that you're already taking? A lot of multis will have stuff like a, like a B complex or vitamin D or something else in there. So if you're already taking vitamin D and you take a multi that has vitamin D in it, are you now taking too much? That's the thing you should be cognizant of. And then second, does it have what it says it has in it? A lot of supplements don't. I'm going to dive into this a little later. Same with, is it absorbable? Also going to dive into that a little later at the very end. But it's especially true of a multi. Since you're trying to cover so many bases with one pill, you should make sure it actually works. A couple of recommendations I have um, of things that I know are good are athletic greens. I think it tastes bad. Um, I think it's very expensive. I think it's a fantastic supplement. You really can't do much better. They do a very good job of creating actually absorbable, useful forms of all the vitamins in there. It has a poor amount of magnesium. That is because it would have to have a much bigger dose. But for the most part, it is a really great supplement. It also costs almost, I don't know, three bucks a serving if it's not on sale. And I think it tastes like green things with stevia poured on it. I don't like it, but it does a great job. Next, Thorn. T-H-O-R-N-E uh, is a wonderful supplement company. Their multis are great. They make one specifically for athletes and one for non-athletes. I actually think the non-athlete one probably has enough if you are even moderately responsible with your diet and you are not a professional athlete. It's also kind of expensive. It requires multiple pills per day. The athlete one, I think is three pills twice a day. And the even the regular one is, it's called their two a day. So you take two pills a day. One I like and I'm going to get if I'm going to get another multi is pure encapsulations. Again, one uh, O period N period E is some kind of acronym. Multivitamin. It's one pill a day, less than a dollar a day. It's very affordable. Their format's really good. It's terrible in magnesium. All multis are terrible in magnesium. Otherwise, it's a great supplement. So if you're going to take a multi, I would recommend that one. Now, beetroot. So this is specifically asked. I was going to do this one anyway, because this is this one's kind of fun. Um, you'll often see things like beet powder or juice or something for race performance. And they might do something. I've seen this as a very quoted supplement from a bunch of really good sources, including this book here, Peak by Mark Bubbs really good book. It talks a lot about race performance and has like this whole subset of supplements on it. And he only really quotes four and beets are one of them. So he clearly thinks they work. He also gives some pretty high caveats, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Why do they work? They boost a thing called nitric oxide, NO. 
and higher nitric oxide leads to better blood flow. And if you have better blood flow before a race or during a race, you might delay exhaustion because you're not, it's basically like avoiding dehydration. If you get dehydrated, you get worse blood flow. You can't digest food and you can't move as well. Same thing here, except it improves it rather than makes it worse. So do they work? Yes. Um, the problem is most beet products don't actually contain enough nitrates to do anything. If you have a like beetroot powder, it is almost certainly useless. I looked at a bunch of these. I don't think any of the powders actually had enough nitrates to be functional. If you were gonna eat whole beets, you would have to eat around four or five cups of them to create any effect on your nitric oxide. The most effective form of beets is beet juice, not powders, juice. And it should be a somewhat concentrated juice. Next, not like juice from concentrate, but it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be watered down. You're gonna need a good amount of it. Next is training history. Most higher level professional athletes already have very good nitric oxide production. The better trained you are, the less likely you are able to benefit from an NO booster. This is true of beets, it is true of arginine, it is true of citrulline. The more trained you get, the tougher it's gonna to be. Esther says borscht. Love borscht. You probably have to eat a gallon of it to get enough nitric oxide, but it is wonderful. Um, studies on weekend warriors, kind of like me, seem to show that beets do help. Studies on professional athletes show almost nothing. And then just because beets increase NO, we are still debating whether they actually work. There are promising studies, but there are a couple, which I will share at the end again in the comments, that seem to show that even though beets increase NO, it doesn't actually have any effect on performance. Much like we've talked about low carb diets, yes, they improve your fat oxidation, they don't make you run faster. And that seems to be a similar thing we get through here. And then on the opposite end, supplies to some people in here, especially those who run Spartans, increased blood flow is not always a good thing great for your cardiovascular flow. It's great for um, improving exhaustion of your like heart and lungs. It is not, it also leads to a bigger pump, right? So if you are a climber or you're running a Spartan, don't use NO boosters or your grip is probably going to fail. You're going to fall off the bars and have to do 30 burpees. And for someone who gets a huge pump in your calves when you're running uphill, these are also probably a bad idea. This is true for me, and I've noticed this, like when I take some kind of pre-workout that I've played with in the past, my calves get pumped up faster. So it's a struggle. NO doesn't know, like nitric oxide doesn't know where, where you need more blood, it just increases blood flow. So if you need an example of this, the most famous nitric, nitric oxide booster that comes to my mind is Viagra. It doesn't care where blood goes, it just increases blood flow. So be very cautious depending on your sport. Some athletes swear by beets and other NO boosters, like again, citrulline and arginine. And if you're fairly new to running, it could be worth a shot to see if it improves your performance. But you shouldn't use whole beets because they're really high in fiber. You're gonna end up on the toilet and it, you just have to eat like four of them. Use juice. If you're going to use juice, 
pick one that works. It needs enough nitrates in it. So if they've boiled it or if they've let it sit out forever or whatever, these things can disappear. I will include a link again in the notes that will show which ones have been shown to be effective, at least as of a couple of years ago. Warning three, if you don't eat a lot of beets, they make your poop red and your pee kind of orange. You're not dying. You don't have a hemorrhage and you're just, you ate some beets. And then the powders taste interesting. It's very concentrated. A lot of people don't like the taste. Um, the juice is also really concentrated, but not quite as much. I've had worse foods we will or supplements. I will talk about some of them in a minute. Uh, next, actually, but it's not great. So just be kind of aware of that. If it were, if I were going to use this, I would get a juice. I'd buy one that's really high in nitrates and I'd take like four to five ounces of it and see if it helps. Next, we have BCAAs and EAAs. So BCAAs are branch chain amino acids. Uh, EAAs would be essential amino acids. Protein is made up of 21 amino acids, nine of them, eight, nine, there's kind of debate about the ninth one, um, definitely eight, are essential. The reason the ninth is because technically it's not essential. You can make it in your body from other things, but it's at such a low rate that you probably need to take it in anyway. Anyway, <coughs> BCAAs are just the branch chain versions of these essential amino acids. So leucine, um, isoleucine, and valine. And BCAAs are almost always going to come in a two to one to one ratio. Two parts leucine to one part isoleucine to one part valine. And these are required for your muscles to, like for muscle protein synthesis to happen. This, we've, we've talked about this a few times. Uh, this is what triggers your muscles to repair or work or build um, after you've done some work. And leucine is particularly the big trigger here. The other two BCAAs seem to do something on this end, but it is mostly the leucine. So that is what BCAAs are for. And they have been studied for a while now. Essential amino acids have also been studied for a while and they can get a similar trigger. The issue with branch chain amino acids is while they will stop and or while they would instigate muscle protein synthesis, so they will stop the breakdown of muscle also, you can't actually build muscle with them. You still need all of the essential amino acids to build muscle. So if you're using it as a protein supplement, you should get the essential amino acids because the BCAAs are not going to serve your purpose. You should also just probably buy a protein powder because it's way cheaper and will do better for you. But if you're using it as a protein supplement, you should buy essential amino acids. BCAAs can have a purpose though. For the most part, both of them are a waste of your money and kind of silly. And if you were consuming enough protein overall, there is no purpose to you getting them. But they can help in a couple situations. First, people who don't get enough protein. If you don't eat enough protein, then these things can be useful. You should probably just eat more protein, but if you can't for some reason, of which there are like very valid reasons, like kidney strain, right? Then some BCAAs could help you make more of the protein you're already getting. Great. Women, 
you have lower um, levels of muscle protein synthesis. If you want more on this, please read Stacey Sims' book, Roar. It's a wonderful book about training women and how women are not small men. It's her whole tagline. And she recommends some BCAAs to women, um, specifically around training, if they struggle to get enough protein. She recommends them in general. I think the science is kind of on the line, but if you struggle to get enough protein, you should definitely get some extra leucine. And then elderly people, same thing. There is a somewhat linear decline of muscle protein synthesis from your ages of like 30 to 60. By the time you're 60, it takes a lot more protein for you to get the same trigger of muscle building than it would have when you were 30. So if you are in your 50s or 60s or 70s, then you should supplement because you will get a bigger muscle protein synthesis trigger and helps. You could also just buy leucine, but BCAAs tend to taste a little better. Melissa, I'm actually going to answer this right now because it's going to lean into whatever. I used to take BCAAs and my cousin, a bodybuilder, said that it was basically sugar water and to take EAAs. Is there a huge difference? So I just broke down a large chunk of those. Um, it's kind of sugar water. They're both kind of bullshit, to be very honest. Uh, they're not relevant really across the board unless you're trying to eke out an extra little piece of performance. Um, you should just eat more protein. And then if you're trying to get that boost, then you should, BCAAs are probably going to get you there. You're really targeting the leucine. If you're, again, if you're using it as a supplement, then use the EAAs. And the sugar water aspect is because leucine spikes your uh, insulin. So it actually kind of reacts like sugar in your body. So if you're doing these kind of slow strength sets with a lot of rest, you don't really need that spike in insulin. You don't really want that spike in insulin. You might if you're a bodybuilder because insulin is very anabolic. So you'll put on more muscle if you have a little more insulin spike. A lot of bodybuilders actually inject insulin like a diabetic to get that extra anabolism. It can be useful for that subpopulation. For the standard person, it's probably not great for you. For someone running you know, 15 hours a week, you're just not that concerned with insulin, especially around training. You're so insulin sensitive, it doesn't matter. So different, different diets for different populations. I hope that helps. If you want to need further clarification, please ask. And the other part about BCAAs is <coughs> they can help expedite recovery. So if you look at a lot of 100 miler food recommendations, you're going to see something of a protein recommendation in there. And that is to help occasionally spur muscle protein synthesis so that you don't have quite as much tear down at the end. And you'll last a little longer throughout the race and you won't feel quite as much like garbage for the following week. Now you don't actually need, in this case, the full protein because while you're running hundred miles, your muscles are not gonna do a whole lot of repairing. They're just gonna keep beating the shit out of them. So they're not really gonna repair. However, you could stop the damage a little bit, like just pat the bleeding and you'll get that pretty well from getting some BCAAs. Cause if you're trying to get a good amount of leucine and by a good amount, if you're younger and male, it's like 2.5 grams of leucine. And if you're older and female, it can be up to like four 
right? So we have a range, but still fine. Um, if you are getting enough leucine, you will keep triggering a little bit of this muscle protein synthesis and you won't get quite as much tear down. If you're going to buy these supplements, you could try, like you'll see sometimes BCAAs in these endurance fuels, these carbohydrate sources, uh, these electrolyte blends, and they almost never have enough in there to actually do anything. So I don't know why they're in there. You need quite a bit of them, to be very honest, usually about six grams of BCAAs. Because remember, it's a two to one ratio. You want at least like two to three. So the math, you need about six grams of BCAAs for it to do much of anything. So you could buy something in there and then overdose your, uh, overdose your carbohydrates to get enough BCAAs, or you could buy the BCAAs separately and add them in. Fair warning, leucine tastes terrible, like just terrible. When I said I wasn't a huge fan of the way beet powders taste, this is not even close. Like it tastes like bitter farts and I just not, it's not good. Nobody's ever said they like the taste of leucine. This is why BCAAs are always flavored pretty strongly with sugar and fake sugars, and all sorts of stuff. So be aware of that. You're gonna want the flavored ones, I almost promise you, unless you can just stomach weird things and you're going to want to clearly buy one that's not gonna drive you crazy or blends well with another flavor that you have. So just caveat there. Next supplement that could be useful is creatine. Um, Creatine so safe, like so, so safe. I'm sure someone is allergic to creatine. I've never heard of that person. I don't think anybody else ever has either. It is the most studied supplement in the history of time. There are thousands and thousands of studies on creatine. It will help muscle synthesis. It helps brain function. It helps hydration because it puts and stores water in your muscles, which fair warning, will probably make you gain a pound or two. It'll actually make you hydrate better and your muscles will actually look better because they'll look fuller because it's all intramuscular water. So it's not like you're adding, here, just use this one. So it's not like you're adding like extra fat here. It, it's in the muscles. So like if it were in your bicep, it would just look bigger. So they've shown cognitive benefits, especially for those who don't eat meat because creatine is uh, in meat and how much should we take of this like weirdly magical supplement? You can load creatine by taking 20 grams a day for about a week. You will feel bloated and kind of like garbage. There's not a lot of purpose to doing that. If you are on a like Olympic weightlifting protocol where it really matters and you want all of your creatine that you can get for really explosive movements so you can maximize your creatine phosphate stores, great. That could be worthwhile. Everybody else, because after that, you just move to five grams a day forever. And that's probably where most people should start. And it'll take a little longer to top your stores off, but it'll still be super useful. And it's great. It is not worth loading for most people. Now there's a lot of creatine types out there. They're all nonsense, except for creatine monohydrate. It's one that's been around for decades. Nobody has ever improved on it. It's cheaper than dirt. The reason they keep making new types is because the tub I have has lasted me for months. And it's actually probably close to a year now because I forget to take it every other day. And 
Even if so, it would probably last me six months. Even if I were religious about it, it costs $16. They cannot make money on creatine. So they keep trying to make new things and sell it to boost their, boost their profits. And it just is false. Creatine monohydrate, cheaper than dirt, very effective, very safe. I personally spend like an extra $2 for something called Crea Pure because it guarantees the quality. Because when something's as cheap as dirt and everybody makes it, and they could be putting talcum powder in it for all I know. But I try to at least, so I try to at least get something I know is creatine. Crea Pure is, I think, patented both based on the like production process, but it's still just creatine monohydrate. And I think I buy it from NutriCost or whatever their current name is. And it's 17 bucks. You don't have to take it. It might not help your endurance performance. There are very few studies showing that it actually helps endurance performance. It helps muscles though. And you use your legs a lot. So could be useful. Iron. There are so many runners who are low in iron. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And this is one of those minerals that really requires a full episode if you want to get deep into it. Thankfully, somebody did that episode, and I don't have to do it again. It was Running Explained. Coach Elizabeth did a fantastic thing. I forget who her guest was, but a fantastic episode on iron. If you want to know a lot about iron, you should go listen to that for 35 minutes. Short version is when you're running, keep beating the hell out of your feet, and you basically end up with like little micro bleeds in your feet. You lose a lot of iron through there. And if you're not constantly replenishing this iron, you can end up anemic. Now, the standard levels for anemia might not apply to runners. And this is where I'm just going to, quick reminder, not a doctor. But the standard levels that people might use to get anemia might not apply to runners. And if you are even low on your like iron test or your ferritin test, your storage of iron in your body then you might need more and it might pop up as in range. But as someone who does a lot of endurance work and pounds your feet on a regular basis, you might want more iron where you get iron is there's a lot of places. Um, the most absorbable is actually super helpful here is red meat and that could, or dark meat, right? It could be chicken thighs has a bunch in it. All meat has some iron in it for the most part. And the redder, the more, right? Like elk tastes like iron. Some people don't like it for that reason, but it's very irony. So that's a way that you get iron. And if you are vegan, you're going to want to look up plant sources. Um, I think soy has a decent amount, as does spinach. Vitamin C actually struggles like God, I'm spacing on which way this is. I think if you eat a bunch of vitamin C as you consume iron, it actually um, limits how much you can take in. So if you have an iron deficiency, you might actually want to split your meals a little bit, start with the meat, let the iron digest, and then eat the plants because some of the stuff in the plants will um, slow the absorption and or limit it entirely. So if you are anemic, this is a thing that might be going on even if you're eating well. And some people are more sensitive to that than others. Fish oil. Fish oil is really common. Um, I'm going to kind of blow through this one. I'm only touching on this because it is such a popular supplement. It doesn't 
directly pertain to runners though. This is one of these, it's really great to have, but not exactly relevant to the topic at hand. So we're gonna blow through this one. It's anti-inflammatory because it is an omega-3 oil. There are thoughts by some people, potentially myself included, I'm still a little shaky on this topic of how I feel, not the science of it. I just don't think it played out fully that you want a good balance of omega-3s and omega-6s in your life. If you have too many omega-6s, you end up kind of inflamed and not good and sore. And if you have more omega-3s that are these anti-inflammatories, you stay a little bit more balanced. And then your brain uh, runs very heavily on DHA and EPA, which are two subtypes of omega-3 fatty acids. And fish oil can have a lot in them. And this is why it's really good for your brain. You'll often see fish oils advertised as good for your heart. Kinda, not really. They actually haven't shown that there's a lot of heart benefits to it. They're used, they used to think so, but it hasn't really panned out. It mostly seems to be really good for your brain, which considering how many people get Alzheimer's and dementia, still great. So it's not, not a knock. It just don't believe all the advertising, but it's still really healthy for you. If you were going to get fish oil, buy something that's not rancid. It shouldn't smell like rotten fish. It's gross. Probably still has some of the DHA and EPA in there. So it's not a complete wash, but it tastes bad and it smells bad. And I don't think it's a great idea. And then when you get it, you should keep it in the freezer or the fridge because you wouldn't leave a filet of fish in your pantry for weeks or months on end. So why would we keep fish oil in the pantry? It's the same shit. It is a functionally a piece of fish that you're keeping in the heat. So don't do that, put it in the freezer. And I don't have a great answer for you for how much you need. Again, you were specifically looking for DHA and EPA. These two subsets. If they don't list those on the package, buy a different fish oil. If they do list those, you're looking for one to two grams a day. It's really ideal. That is high. You're going to have to probably buy a better fish oil. If you can't get that much, do what you can, but those are your targets. The other thing that you'll see in something like krill oil, which is great, is astaxanthin and that is also really good for your brain. It also functions as kind of in, I've heard it termed as like an internal sunscreen. But DHA and EPA are the big targets here. I don't take it every day. I take it many days and I keep it in the freezer. We have potassium. This is a quick one. I've talked about this a lot. It is good for cramping. You're probably low because you live here. Potassium is relevant to largely in ratio from sodium. So you have a bunch of sodium, like no potassium, then you need more potassium. And it comes in plants. That's where you get potassium for the most part. There are other sources. That's your best source. If you don't eat a lot of plants, I mean a lot, then you probably don't get enough. And if you eat a lot of processed food, I also pretty much guarantee you don't get enough because processed food is really high in sodium. Again, the ratio is what matters. So you might want to supplement. And all of that aside, you almost certainly want to take some while running because it's relevant to cramping. And if you're not going to supplement with potassium, you should eat a potato because they're really high in potassium. And then a banana because they're a little less high, but also really good in potassium. And then we have sodium. Clearly you need this. It's very important for active people. If you don't get it, you're going to cramp. Uh, you're not going to hydrate well. 
you need enough sodium to be able to hydrate. You could end up with hyponatremia. You need it to function as an athlete. And if you or anybody you know is still doing the low carb endurance athlete thing, it's even more important. When you hear about the keto flu, it's actually typically just not replacing enough electrolytes. So if you have more sodium, you will typically end up with less of that feeling of garbage. So boost your sodium and you'll tend to feel a little better within reason and not if you have a heart condition. Again, none of this is dietary advice, but sodium is useful. Now here's one I actually didn't know too much about prior to this live, um, this live recording. And it was requested from the group. Someone said, talk about phosphates. So looked it up a bit. Phosphates are some form of salt or ester or anion made from phosphorus or coming from phosphorus. And you need phosphorus uh, in your diet. You likely don't need to supplement with phosphates. Most people get enough phosphorus just from your diet. And I'm sure that's not always true. There's always someone, but pretty common. And they're often used as preservatives in processed foods. So you'll often see something like sodium phosphate on the back and it is used as a preservative. You can get too many in that instance because they're much more absorbable than what would normally be found in whole foods. But it's unlikely. You're probably not gonna struggle from like a phosphate overdose. <coughs> Said you shouldn't eat most of your things from whole food or processed foods anyway, because you should eat some whole foods. Now, I guess it could be an issue if you have some genetic predisposition towards phosphorus-related kidney stones. Kidney stones often come from phosphorus and or calcium or other things. They're, they're always mineral, they're almost always mineral deposits. So if you have that, might not be a great idea. And then as far as using them as a supplement for performance, there have been a few studies, but not many, and most of them are really underpowered. Um, there have only been seven double-blind crossover studies on whether phosphates like sodium phosphate improve performance. A subset of those was endurance. I think it was three. Uh, there were only 63 participants total, so really not that many people. The reason they really started looking at this about a decade ago um, was because a study at the University of Florida seemed to show skyrocketing performance from the supplementation of phosphates. And then everybody started looking into phosphates. And then BYU actually did a follow-up study and showed nothing. So this is where we get into the issue of a study said it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Most signal studies don't show, or sorry, single studies don't show much. They usually don't use enough people or they don't have a wide enough age range to apply to everyone. They don't go long enough. They, something can happen on a fluke and then never happen again. So those are all issues with studies. I think science is important. I think we should probably read them. And I think most of us are bad at reading research because it's really hard. So these are issues. And further, we end up with things like uh, negative results almost never get published because they're not as publishable. Most places don't want to, 
publish something that says, we tried this and nothing happened. It's a boring paper for a lot of people to read. It is a very useful thing to have in the public record, but if they can't get funded to publish it, it's never gonna get there. So when it comes to phosphates, most of them seem like they don't help. Um, any improvements that they're gonna show seem to be more for like maximal type exercise, maximal effort type exercise. Here, think like an Olympic lift or 100 meter sprint. And none of these studies were done on anybody older than their early 30s. So I have no idea how it affects people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s. I, I don't see any reason to go out of your way to get phosphates and for no other reason than it's a waste of money. And if you eat a bunch of processed food, you probably get enough of them anyway. So if you have any follow-ups on that, I would love to answer them in the chat, just pop it in. And if you're watching this on replay, then please post a comment and I'll be happy to clarify. Finally, caffeine, the mother of all, like this helps your performance supplements. It absolutely does. It has been shown like to a T that caffeine helps your performance in most people. And here's the thing, genetically, you process caffeine differently than someone else. There's a wide range of how fast people process caffeine. There is a gene that is particularly relevant. So you could see if you were a like slow, middle or fast metabolizer, but even then you're still gonna be on a spectrum. Fast metabolizers benefit from more caffeine. Slow metabolizers might not benefit at all. And then somewhere, in, and then at higher doses, slow metabolizers will actually see a performance decrease because the anxiety tends to cause problems. Two milligrams per kilogram of body weight, about a half an hour before exercise is almost guaranteed to see either nothing or performance increase. It's a really safe dose to take. Problem is you don't know how much is in your coffee. So if coffee is your caffeine source, they've actually shown that coffee does not do a great job. It seems to bring with it a little more anxiety and a little less performance. It's very healthy for you from a, it comes with a bunch of, uh, phytochemicals and healthy things in it perspective, but it's not necessarily great for your performance. That caffeine in your gel is a much better choice. It is typically caffeine or yeah, caffeine and hydrous, and it's just easy to dose and does a great job for performance. So that is probably what you should be targeting. That said, I'm going to drink coffee before a race because I love coffee. It makes me happy, but we need to be aware of its effect on your performance. Also, most of the studies that are done on caffeine are not done on people running for 24 hours. So when you say something like 30 minutes before, what the hell does that mean, right? You, if you're doing a hundred miler, it is actually pretty common recommendation that makes a lot of sense to me. If you need a cup of coffee in the morning or you want a cup of coffee in the morning, take it and then limit your caffeine the entire rest of the day. That way, when it becomes midnight to four in the morning, those times where no one wants to be awake, trust me, because I've been awake a lot during those times for night work, when everybody kind of starts to drag, that's when you pump your caffeine and it will help you get through the rough spots. 
So if you have a gel you like and it's caffeinated, I highly recommend that you find a non-caffeinated version of that substance. So if you're going to do these really long races. I think that is the end of my individual supplements. I'm gonna close up with a couple things. If you have any questions for those who are still sticking around, first, thank you. This went almost an hour, way longer than I planned. So thanks for chilling. If you have any questions, pop them in. I'm also gonna say that you might not know what your supplements actually contain. You need to get them from a good source. If you're going to use supplements, you should spend a little money on them. There is no regulation in the supplement industry. It's actually a very well-known problem. And if you're not in America, happy day for you. That might not be as much of an issue, but if they're made here, it's still valid. It's still relevant. Most regulation is very self-imposed. If you see something like third-party tested or uh, NSA safe for sport, all of these things are very good things to see on your supplement bottle or package. But if that's not there, it just says, here's the thing. That might not be what it says it is. I know people who've ordered supposedly very high quality protein powder on the internet to find shreds of like weaved plastic in it. And I know places that have tested like melatonin is a big one because it's a hormone. So it's a big deal when you have hormones that aren't dosed correctly. It's not like you're going willy nilly with your thyroid replacement um, or birth control or testosterone replacement. And yet melatonin, they've tested bottles of this and one pill will have like a trace amount. And then another pill in the same bottle will have multiple times as much as is on the front of the bottle. It is a problem. And I highly recommend you buy from a trusted brand. There's a lot of them. Um, Bub Supplements, Legion, Thorn, Pure Encapsulations. If you need a recommendation, hit me up. I have a ton on a spreadsheet that I just kind of keep so that I know who to trust. Um, if you're willing to gamble for a cheaper product, great. Just know that you have no idea what's in it. And then we also want to make sure our supplements are actually absorbable. So this is what I was talking about briefly with multivitamins, however long ago that was at this point. And sometimes it comes down to form, right? So if we look at magnesium, the type of magnesium matters. Magnesium citrate's a laxative. You want something like malic, uh, magnesium malate or magnesium glycinate. This is also true for folic acid versus folate. They are different and one of them is better. And then solid pills that are compressed don't tend to be as absorbable as ones that are like these cellulose caps with a bunch of powder inside. Make sure your supplements are of good quality. They should be absorbable. And then finally, one last rule I will say is take your supplements with food. And that is typically after you've started eating. And there are two primary reasons for this. One is fat. A lot of vitamins are fat soluble. So I don't mean with your pre-workout or your food that you're, or your carb powder that you're going to take on your run. Take it with a meal. Vitamins A, E, K, and D do not absorb unless they have fat with them. So this is why my vitamin D is suspended in olive oil. So I just take it straight. I also take fish oil. So my vitamins are taken with that. So there's plenty of oil in that. But if you're just taking a single multivitamin a day, you should definitely take it with food. 
Further, some minerals like zinc and or the high doses of vitamin B will often cause you an upset stomach if you don't have some food in your stomach. So take your vitamins with food. Also warning on vitamin B that I meant to include earlier, it tends to be very energizing. One of the reasons five-hour energy works so well for a lot of people is there's an insane amount of B vitamins in there. It's not just the caffeine, there's a lot of B vitamins. So it hits your stomach kind of like a truck and then will make you real wired and a little sick. So take it with fat and probably take it earlier in the day. Finally, this isn't really a supplement, but I wanted to include it because we're talking about performance increases and music. They've shown a huge improvement in performance from listening to the like quote right music. There is no right music overall. It's music that you like that gets you hyped and amped up. For me, that is a wide variety of things. There's a bunch of different genres on my workout playlist, but it's all of these things that get you excited, amped, get your blood flowing. And they've shown a 15% improvement in lifting from this. So you're, there's a much like stronger muscle contraction. And they've also shown an improvement in endurance from music. And they've also shown a like 15% drop in perceived pain. And considering that one of the things that really sets elite athletes apart from a lot of us is not their pain threshold, but their pain tolerance, that can be a big deal. A 15% increase in perceived or decrease in perceived pain is amazing. So there are a lot of people who don't listen to music while they train. It's fine. There's a lot of people who actively talk shit on using music while they train. And that is not fine. It is a performance enhancer. If you enjoy it, that's great. I will give the one announcement that one of my biggest pet peeves is to see someone, uh, two things, one, playing your music from your shitty phone speaker while you're out in the wilderness. Don't do that, please. It's really impolite. And unless you know you're alone. And then two, please do not wear headphones like this where you can't hear anything because you're going to get hit. I almost saw a runner get hit by a car the other day because she had headphones like this while crossing the street. And it was scary for me. I'm sure it was even more scary for her and the car. So please use those uh, ones that use bone conduction or have like a single earbud that you keep in so you can hear. But music is super helpful. And if you're doing something like a hundred miler, you might use it sparingly, only use it when the really tough parts are there. Maybe when you're using your caffeine through the night and maybe the rest of your run is like chiller music or a podcast or something but music is super helpful and is definitely a performance enhancer. Um, I think that's all I have for today as far as supplements. If you have any questions, please pop them in. If you're watching this on replay, pop it into the comments. And I'd be happy to answer it for you. Otherwise, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll be back uh, next week with another one of these. And also please keep an eye on the podcast feed this weekend. I had the pleasure of interviewing the ultra running guys, which was kind of weird because they were the first ones to interview me. So that will be out this Saturday. So have a good day. Uh, thanks for sticking around those who did. And I'll talk to you later.
Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.